during my PhD, I got in to explore a lot of different directions in representational learning, one of which was learning to disentangle different factors from data. And there are a lot of different approaches. One is to use unsupervised learning and be able to, without any supervision, learn a low dimensional representation of the data where each dimension focuses on a certain aspect. For example, you are learning from natural images and the first dimension of the representation you're learning represents um, the color that is that exists in, in, in your input. And the second dimension represents like the, the kind of shapes that exist. For example, is there a circle? Is there a triangle? Is there an apple that is round? And the third dimension represents their shape and so on. So you're kind of trying to come up with a mechanism that can separate different concepts and disentangle one, one concept from another. Hello and welcome back to the Austrian AI podcast. I'm your usual host, Manu Pasika, and this is the second part of my interview with Hamid Ekbal Sadeh, postdoc researcher at the Johannes Kepler University in Linz. During the first episode, we talked about representation learning and how robust representations can help models to generalize and to improve on the out-of-training distribution performance. In the second part of the interview, we conclude our discussion on data augmentation as a means to help with model robustness. And we talk about Hamid's research on disentangled representations as another way to improve model generalization. The main objective of disentangled representation learning is for a model to be able to distinguish different aspects or concepts on the training data in the representation space. An oversimplified way to think about this is to imagine a vector representing the state of the world. And a disentangled representation is one where each position in that vector stands for a different aspect or property of the world. Hamid talks about his research on disentangled representation learning applied to contextualized reinforcement learning, where one tries to train agents that can themselves identify different contexts in which to operate. Disentangled representation can in such a setting help to separate the perception problem from the decision problem that an agent has to solve. Separating the two helps the agent to generalize and be more robust to previously unseen states in the world, as fluctuations in the representation will not affect the decision process as much. In addition, it helps us humans to better understand and reason about the behavior of the agent. We conclude the episode with an outlook on Hamid's current research on the limits of context learning and how one can help an agent to perform well on previously unseen contexts with techniques like self-attention and symbolic reasoning. I really hope that you found this two-part interview interesting and that it helps you to strengthen your understanding of deep neural networks. It definitely was useful to me. Perfect. So we have the two things together now, as you said, right, data augmentation, as you said, like um, modifying your data set maybe to the end in order to to include certain inductive biases that you know about. You're extending your data set in many ways. And then we have the adversarial examples, as you said, like understanding that like certain perturbations to your data can have 
uh, can cause a model to have very different predictions. The two of them, you then in many ways, then you combine them, if understood it correctly, to, as you said, like have a better understanding, have ways to analyze um, how data augmentation changes and have what kind of effect it has on a trained model. Exactly. So with the set of tools, uh, mostly in inspired from adversarial machine learning research, and some of it actually was further developed by us that could tell uh, tell you actually about the decision boundary of these models, not only how these models become vulnerable to adversarial attacks of different strengths and different kinds, but also further, uh, do I have a model with a smooth decision boundary? Which means it's very hard for a sample to jump from one class to the other because uh, it has to kind of go a long way to pass the boundary. Or do mm -hmm. I have a, a decision, a model with a decision boundary which is very unsmooth and wiggly? And if I change a little bit my data point, it will jump over to the other class. And this kind of analysis has been. Uh, used in the adversarial machine learning literature for long, and I found these kind of uh, evaluation tools uh, extremely helpful to understand the effect of a particular uh, module or inductive bias that you apply to your model kind of blindly, but you can understand better your models using these tools. And that's uh, what our paper came to be a, uh, a large scale um, empirical study of analyzing different kinds and strength of data augmentation, and then analyzing the models using techniques uh, inspired by adversarial machine learning to uh, kind of tell them apart in terms of characteristics of their, uh, uh, the models. In addition to the performance, in addition to the generalization, uh, and then we had this kind of arsenal of evaluation measures that could give you a bigger picture to understand better what actually does this data augmentation to your model. Mm -hmm. Understand. And if understood correctly as well, like part of the, the outcome anyway, so the conclusions that you draw in your paper was that one has to be quite careful with those data augmentation, right? They can help as well the generation capabilities, but the impact that the different data augmentations have on your model, and in particular, if understood it correctly, that even like the impact or like the weight that data, that augmented examples get in your models uh, can be higher than, for example, the natural um, ex uh, examples, which in this sense are closer to, to many ways, like to the maybe like to the true world where you have been sampling them. Exactly. So what it turned out to be, our takeaway was that um, you apply a data augmentation, probably you gain zero point zero zero one percent in accuracy and you it may be good for you right and you add the second augmentation to the first augmentation and you combine everything all together and you hope for the best to uh, publish your next paper but um, when you start looking into the characteristics of these models you end up seeing severe differences in terms of decision boundaries and in terms of robustness and in terms of how much reliance these models have on perhaps adversarial regions of the data when making a decision. And this becomes to be a very uh, important uh, discovery in terms of uh, the characteristic of the model that uh, we um, encourage uh, the community to uh, take into account 
when doing research in lower level uh, kind of uh, modules such as data augmentation that are done kind of quietly and maybe not a lot of people pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And what would then uh, as a conclusion or outcome of this paper for you would be the recommendations that you would give, give on people on how to use data augmentation? Uh, right. So in terms of using the data augmentation, definitely we uh, lean more towards um, uh, data augmentations that are aligned with the task and data at hand, for example, are given by an expert in the domain rather than just learning from scratch and hoping for the best. Um, we definitely see a significant difference in terms of, uh, uh, let's say shape of the decision boundary and the generalization performance and robustness on, on such methods compared to um, the, uh, let's say, heuristic methods that we evaluated. And in general, we uh, also strongly recommend to start using the additional tools that we introduced in our paper or perhaps go farther and find even more useful tools to understand how uh, your model actually forms its decision boundaries because then you can understand it better and don't only rely on a classification accuracy. Mm -hmm. Understand, makes sense. Then maybe shortly before we move to that next topic, there's one thing that I want to ask you out of curiosity when I was reading that paper, um, is that you have been distinguishing between uh, three bigger groups of data augmentation, if a paper if understood it correctly. On one side, as you already touched upon, this is like this expert-defined augmentations, right? With this inductive bias, it's about the task. You know what kind of augmentations make sense. Images, flipping them, rotating them, uh, cropping them. That's one side. The other one um, being, for example, learned data distributions that you touched upon as well, like GANs, right? Where you provide um, some the data, you train a generative model, you are able to then generate inferior, as you said, maybe an infinite number of other uh, data points or examples, not maybe necessarily very useful ones, but inferior, in, in, uh, infinite amount of them. And the third uh, one being mix-ups, and I did not know mix-up myself, so I looked it up a bit, and superficially, as I understood this correctly, is it mix-up is a technique where you combine different uh, examples, original examples together, and you, you're building a kind of blend of those examples. And you do this on one side as the input space, but as well like on the labor space if you understood it. So for example, if you take, um, in the trivial case, if, if you take images, and I found a paper that I showed this so nicely, you take, for example, two type of uh, breeds of, bre of dogs, in the dog cat classification, for example, you take two different dogs, you blend those pictures together, and you provide that to the model. And for me, um, if this is understood correctly, for me it was a bit um, strange in this sense, like the SD seems to help a model to improve its decision boundaries. It, it seems to help to improve the classification performance of a of dog-cat detection model. Um, to me, it was, was somehow showing that the type of representation or the type of learning that is done in those models must be very different to the human learning, right? Because like, if you show me such a strange ghosted image or blended image of two different dogs, uh, this would tell me, oh, there's something weird going on. This is less looking like a normal dog, right? Then it would exactly. definitely not, it would not help me to understand now better. Aha, that's a dog, right? So <laughs> um, that, that, that was very curious to me. So maybe can you, can you share some thoughts on this? 
Sure, sure. Uh, you touched on actually a very important part of our paper. So I would call Mixup just as one example of these heuristics methods okay. where they come up with the general rule. One would say, okay, we pick two random samples, a cat and a dog, and then we sample from some uh, distribution and then we come up with a lambda, uh, which is, for example, 0 0.9. And then we combine 0.9% or 90% of the cat and then combine it with 10% of the dog in terms of opacity. And then we have this uh, mishmash of these two mm -hmm. uh, images that kind of fades from a dog to a cat. And then this is a new training sample. And for a label, we introduce this to the model as a 90% of a dog and 10% of a cat. Mm -hmm. And then the model has to kind of figure it out. So it kind of blends in the soft label concept and um, introducing to the model that in the world could be there could be images that are not 100% a certain object, right? So the kind of soft label trick was is not new. It has been here for a very long time and it has its own benefits. But as you mentioned, the, the main issue is that depending on your task and depending on your domain and your data, um, this combination may not exist in the real world. And uh, in some cases, it actually could be dangerous because imagine your data manifold is a donut, right? And there is a hole in, in, in the middle of this donut. And if you linearly interpolate between a sample on one side of the donut and a sample on the other side of the donut, you're kind of filling the hole. So your model may actually end up learning a data manifold that does not have the hole and it kind of completely changes the geometry of the data manifold of this model is learning. And it could be dangerous, but uh, yeah, there, there is a discussion and there are several papers that discuss such heuristics could end up producing um, out of distribution samples that could be dangerous and there are mechanisms that are designed to kind of reject such samples and there is like a, a kind of divided literature in this direction some papers provide robustness proofs other papers provide uh, non-robustness proofs for example out of distribution samples could em emerge in this setting but uh, we kind of took an empirical road to show uh, what happens in reality and what are the characteristics of the model. And we kind of empirically show that this is not a good idea to uh, blindly apply such data augmentations. Understand. Yeah, very interesting. Very cool. Um, well, then I see like what we definitely want to cover and next and we talked about it is like then your work as a postdoc in many ways. So um, which was then as well very much focused on representation learning, but distance um, is instead with another twist, right? It's going towards uh, disentangled representation and its application and reinforcement learning. Um, I see there are many different, uh, again, uh, terms here and uh, interesting paradigms. Can you maybe start out with a bit as I said, like before, an overview of um, what, for example, in this sense, maybe what is representation, uh, sorry, what is um, reinforcement learning? And, and then as well, like what is disentangled representation learning for our listeners? Sure, of course. Um, 
I'm glad that we still have the time to touch on this and discuss a little bit because this is a topic uh, very close to my heart and I'm very enthusiastic about this new topic that I'm working on. And uh, for, for, for the listeners out there, reinforcement learning is actually a very uh, wide and interesting topic that has a lot of subfields. But in general, uh, the problem setting is that you have an agent that interacts with an environment. Um, um, for example, you have a robot that tries to interact with the world and walks around and grabs things and so on. So it actually receives observations from the world and sees, let's say, uh, uh, the, the world around it and then uh, performs actions and changes the environment. And through these uh, actions, actually, and observations, then it uh, could actually receive rewards that could lead these agents towards learning to do certain kind of uh, behaviors that is uh, uh, suitable or um, useful for this agent. For example, if the, the goal is walking towards a specific goal, then by trying different kinds of uh, movements, uh, it could learn a policy that in the end could emerge into a walking behavior. And there are a lot of different interesting fields in reinforcement learning in particular. Um, and um, I will uh, next, we'll discuss in what parts I actually uh, had a chance to discuss. But the second one that I, I want to uh, talk a little bit is disentangled representation learning. So as I mentioned during my PhD, I got in to explore a lot of different directions in representation learning, one of which was learning to disentangle different factors from data. And there are a lot of different approaches. One is to use unsupervised learning and be able to, without any supervision, learn a low dimensional representation of the data where each dimension focuses on a certain aspect. For example, you are learning from natural images and the first dimension of the representation you're learning represents um, the color that is that exists in, in, in your input. And the second dimension represents like the, the kind of shapes that exist. For example, is there a circle? Is there a triangle? Is there an apple that is round? And the third dimension represents their shape and so on. So you're kind of trying to come up with a mechanism that can separate different concepts and disentangle one, one concept from another. And there is uh, like a generative view of the world that is kind of the reverse mechanism of what we are trying to achieve here, which says that there are high level uh, concepts or there are high level variables. And the way the world creates a new observation is by first sampling from the distribution of these high level representations or concepts or variables and then observing those and then passing them into uh, the environment or the simulator and then observing uh, those variables itself. For example, we first sample to see what colors are available in the world, what objects are available. And for example, it says, okay, there is a red apple and there is a um, uh, white cake. 
And then once you know the shapes and the colors, and then you pass to your simulator or your environment, then you observe an, an image of a an apple with a with a cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we are trying to accomplish in disentangled representation learning is to reverse this generative view of the world and try to uh, learn what were what were those high level variables that were observed first before passing it through the world simulator and the images. So we are kind of trying to reverse that step and get a variable that says, okay, in this image, I see one white cake and one red apple. And then you can do much more in terms of processing, in terms of decision-making when you have this compressed representation and you can be much more robust and you can generate much more because then the pixels don't matter to you. You can just build a policy or build a model on top with this compressed disentangled representation. You don't have to worry about uh, a lot of things because your representation is much less or lower dimensional and <clears throat> a lot of um, artifacts may not appear in this representation anymore. Mm-hmm. Like if there is a, a sensor artifact, there is no room for center, sensor artifact. Maybe there is a dimension that represents center sensor artifacts, but your decision-making model could just ignore that dimension altogether and only focus on the interesting factors. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, makes makes sense. I was just thinking about it. Um, if you at the beginning, like started out explaining reinforcement learning, and like maybe to contrast it to what we have been talking before, when we were implicitly talking maybe about image classification and similar. Right. I always thought about it that uh, like, um, for example, supervised or unsupervised learning are conditions in a methodologies where you have a very defined uh, environment. Right. You have like this model that you that you pro- that you train on specific um select a training set and you will use it in a specific setting right and and suddenly in this reinforcement learning paradigm as you said in many ways you have like uh, you be always associated in many ways with a robot right because there's an agent that is going out into the world right in many ways you not necessarily can control the experiences that they will have so in which in which way they the way they will um that the training data that they will get um this can be quite open can be they they can come to their own situation by uh, by coming into a specific state into the world and the way they interact with it that they experience things that you did not really really participate initially and right if you would then be able to that right solve this then you would have the possibility to generalize much more uh, exactly under this condition i can easily imagine that like right, this disentangled representation can be very useful and for for um, an agent or a model to be able to distinct what is really relevant and what the different aspects of it right Curious about one thing because, as in preparation as well to to the interview, I was looking back into some of the basics, and what I found very interesting was like in general when we talk about the representation and many ways that we use it now, the the, the representation we call it distributed representation that that we are using here in these models, and I was thinking like. They are called, why are they called distributed representation? And what I found in part is in many ways they are contrasted to a type of local representation, where, for example, local would mean something like a one-hot encoding. If you have, for example, a very common in the NLP space, right, um, where you say, okay, you have a big vector one uh, with an indicator one at some specific point, which indicates a specific word, for example. But in contrast to that, a distributed representation, which as well can be a very big vector, right? Um, in many ways, shows that 
the the values that you have in this representation are not localized to a specific position in this vector. But in many ways, if you understood it correctly, this is in part exactly what you want with the disentangled representation. Did you understand right. this correctly? Exactly. So you want each um, factor, which is debatable what factors we are interested in, but we, we always talk about these high level semantic factors that we as humans understand and that therefore is what we are interested in. We would like these factors to be captured independently so that uh, we can kind of separate perception from decision making, right? And the perception could only tell us there are these factors available and you can measure their uh, kind of uh, intensity in each dimension. And the decision making part will, based on the values of each factor, then we'll have a much easier time whether it's control or reinforcement learning or just a classifier or a future learner, it will have a much easier time. And there has been uh, a lot of work in, in the direction of representation learning for reinforcement learning and self-supervision for reinforcement learning that actually try to do that and kind of break down uh, the problem of um, um, learning from pixels into uh, learning a good representation for reinforcement learning and then use this to learn uh, good policies that generalize well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of complexity could actually be broken down if you have a good uh, representation learning module and if you have a representation that can generalize because um, one way, for example, if you have a good disentanglement, then uh, your policy will not freak out if something in the input changes because then you still will have separate dimensions capturing different concepts, right? And your your policy will have a much more chance to generalize better. But again, we are kind of uh, shifting the problem into the representation learning, right? The, in the representation learning part, we will have the issue, but that's another yeah, discussion. Mm -hmm. Understand. And if I said it correctly, but, and I think this was actually very nice in your paper when you talked about this contextualized reinforcement learning, um, that um, in your paper you, you had this wonderful setup and I think you have a, a presentation online about it with a, with a video where you, where you can show this, but you have this nice um, simulation where you have an agent operating in a, in a checkerboard environment. It, it looks a bit like a Pac-Man actually, where, where the, the, the agent is running around and has to consume certain um, elements in this world and others not. And if I stood it correctly, is that part of the, so the agent has to learn what to consume under a certain context, if understood this correctly. That's right. That's right. This, this was our attempt to uh, kind of create a simplistic environment for contextualized learning, which is a very important aspect in reinforcement learning and learning in general, in my opinion, and it shows up in a lot of different areas of reinforcement learning because making decisions uh, if you want to do it in a sequential manner uh, could always be contextualized. So if you observe a single image, it's important to see, okay, what it means in the long, uh, let's say, uh, long period of time or, or longer period of time. And perhaps the decision always has to be contextualized and the observations that we have also always has to be paired within the context that this decision needs to be made. And we were trying to kind of... Uh, come up with a simplistic environment that can represent this. And we introduced different contexts 
which in the real world you, you can think of, for example, in the self-driving car scenario where your car uh, wants to drive in a city center or in a highway. And the scenery could be similar, but the car has to understand to change its behavior. If it's in the city center, it needs to be much more careful when it wants to uh, kind of follow a specific trajectory because then somebody might jump into the car and it has to uh, behave differently. And when it's on a highway and it has to follow a different policy. So uh, the context that we introduced with, with my colleagues was to, uh, depending on the certain colors that we put in the representation of the agent itself, the agent has to realize in which context it is. And depending on uh, a context, different colors have different meanings for the, the items that are present in the environment. For example, if the agent itself has the color red, then the items with the color red will give positive reward and the, 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 the items that have, for example, the yellow color, they will be uh, giving negative reward. But if the agent's color itself is yellow, then collecting yellow will, will result in positive reward and collecting red will result in negative reward. So mm -hmm. the agent has to understand this, that in which context it is. And this is done without supervision. The agent does not have any additional information that in which context it is, and it has to just learn by itself in which context it is and try to kind of understand what rule we are putting in this environment and kind of has to learn, okay, so this is the concept, what it means and how I can convert a concept to a certain kind of reward distribution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely very interesting. When just looking at this work, actually, I was curious on one side, um, I mean, I definitely understand uh, or I can see the challenge there, as you said, right? Because like in many ways without understanding this context, as you said, the same perception, which for example, a red ball is, the, is identical, right? But they have very different meanings in this sense. The, the one being a positive reward, the one being a negative reward. If you would ignore in many ways the context, the results being just some kind of mean or would, would probably be a, a very bad one. But um, I was curious, this the dimensions of that context. So like, what is the relevant in many ways that, for example, in this sense, it is the color, for example, of, of the item. Um, is this something, as you said, like this is learned as well by the agent automatically, or is this a, some kind of inductive bias or that you have to introduce? Right. The dimensionality actually is something that uh, is hard coded in the architecture of the model. And it's often uh, kind of a fixed architecture across different environments or input dimensions. Um, and the, the, the idea is that it should be large enough for the agent to learn the most important factors. And there is always a lot of uh, kind of unused dimensions, which is common, and the policy just has to learn to ignore them. Mm -hmm. So although one could... Uh, kind of tune this and kind of make the agent aware of how many factors are in the environment. But often, since the learning is unsupervised, this is not the case. And usually you need more dimensions than the real factors present because there are a lot of 
the optimization the optimization is not that perfect to exactly learn mm -hmm. every dimension. You always have these unused dimensions in in the learning, which kind of makes sense because there is no label in in learning. Yeah. Definitely makes sense. Then maybe one other thing um, concerning to this work, as you already said, right? Um, being then able, for example, to the model to learn exactly. So, okay, this aspect and that aspect is relevant. How is it, especially in a reinforcement learning, a free walking agent in many ways, um, is there, does it make a difference for those learners um, when they are exposed to a new context. So for example, if, if they would initially already in, in the early stages of the training be exposed to all of the different contexts, can they learn them as well as, for example, if like, if at later stages, they suddenly are exposed to a new type of context, because in a real world scenario that I would expect to happen, right? An agent maybe was trained at some specific area, maybe then they, you partially then over time expand the world which is exposed to that agent and they are, they are coming more and more like edge cases, more different uh, different context over time. Do And how is the interaction in many ways then about like what has been learned in the past with a new type of context that this then the agent has to learn? Very, very interesting question. And I'm glad you asked it because I can make a nice connection to my current work. Uh, in this direction, uh, we did a follow-up work after our initial work in contextual reinforcement learning to understand to what extent this contextual agent can generalize into unseen contexts. And what we found out was that if we just use uh, like some state-of-the-art policies and some state-of-the-art representation learning, although we have a kind of pretty good representation of the input. And even if we stay within this distribution, meaning we don't introduce a new color, we just use the colors that were there, um, the agent does not learn the right rules for what the context is. It kind of statistically kind of memorizes what combination of factors uh, should result in what kind of reward distribution. So we wanted to see if we can kind of uh, evaluate this reasoning capability of agents so that the agent understand, okay, if there is a new color in the location of my body as an agent, then I have to pick this color, look at its value, and then query on all the objects in the environment and pick that exact object that has the same color as me. We wanna, we were curious if such things could just emerge via mm -hmm. using some state-of-the-art policies and representation learning. And what we found out was that actually this is not the case and we have a significant drop in performance. And then we started to think about how can we incorporate the mechanism that can result in such a behavior. And we ended up actually looking into retrieval of, uh, these uh, disentangled factors and kind of um, look into uh, the similarities of different uh, uh, factors, which was implemented using an attention mechanism where the agent could actually query on the disentangled factors and then find what factors are present and then was able to pick from those factors and then say, okay, this is the factor that I'm curious about and I want to go with mm -hmm. within a set of uh, kind of stored queries 
that it had uh, in its disposal. And then depending on if that choice was correct or not, whether it would result in a positive reward or negative reward. And in the long term, it kind of could learn that, okay, this factor is important and I have to use these factors to query, for example, and get the objects that have the same factor. And this was implemented via a self-attention module and a contextual attention module that we introduced in that paper, which turned out to uh, improve the performance on unseen contexts. So it kind of hinted that you need a certain mechanism. Otherwise, there are cheat ways for agents to mm. bypass this reasoning and just ignore what we want them to do, which if you work in reinforcement learning, you're pretty familiar with these cheating agents. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to enforce a mechanism that allows you to uh, learn this context because the problem is that in the real world, the distributions change all the time and you have to be uh, actually uh, focusing on, first of all, how to detect this change. And second of all, what mechanism to use to adapt to it because there are a lot of different ways to deal with the problem. You can use exploration as a mechanism. You can use detection of distribution change and then change the behavior of your, your agent and your learning and so on. Or you could just uh, incorporate certain decision-making um, policies, right? Or decision-making modules and say, okay, I want to have a specific decision-making uh, module in my agent such that it follows a certain, let's say, logical reasoning or whatever that you're interested in. And you have kind of uh, a way of getting that module to work and you want to incorporate it. And then how could you incorporate this in an agent? And these are the questions that we are actually working on at the moment at the Institute. Very nice, very interesting. Definitely, I can imagine this to be very challenging, but as you said, like um, very rewarding as well, being able to really then improve the generalization capabilities and the, the capabilities of such an agent to explore unseen and new, new environments. Right, exactly. I see that we are running already um, quite late in the interview. I don't want to um, take you away from this interesting research. I do would have a, a few interesting questions, but um, if we are already running very late, then maybe, yeah, maybe we see if it come to answer this another time. But um, with this and with Hamid, I want to maybe say thank you very much for taking the time. I think this has been very interesting um, and you have been uh, describing and you have been explaining many very important topics in the area of uh, representation learning and uh, adversarial examples, reinforcement learning. I think this is really, really, really interesting research you are doing there and um, you are very successful with it. And I want to thank you again very much for coming on to the show and sharing this with our audience. Thanks a lot, Daniel. I had really a lot of fun discussing with you and uh, I think this was a really interesting discussion and I'm very glad that uh, you invited me to, to be here. Very good. It's very much my pleasure. But with this, I want to say thank you again and um, I want to wish you a nice day and I wish you a good of luck and uh, with your progress and the research you are doing. Uh, thanks a lot. You too. Thank you very much for listening to this interview with Hamid Ekbal Sadeh. Next on the podcast, I will talk to Adrian Schiegel, Head of Data Science at Xund. Xund is using NLP technologies and recommender systems to predict possible diseases based on user-provided symptoms in order to help digitize a patient's journey and enable the most effective treatment of patients. 
I hope you're looking forward to the next episode of the Austrian AI podcast. See you then.